Okay, well, here we are. So we're gonna talk about prudence, we're gonna talk about virtue, we're embarking on this uh, cardinal virtue study. If you have a chance to pick up this book, it's an excellent book. It's also a very difficult book to read. You can also find this book for free online uh, because it's been in print for long enough that the copyright is actually out. There's a place called archive.org that you can find a lot of really good books on for free, just FYI, archive.org. Um, there's a pro tip for you. So I want to start with this. I hate peanut butter. Yep, I know it seems strange to start a talk on virtue with uh, an expression of my uh, distaste for an American pastime, but I really do hate peanut butter. I don't like it at all. And uh, people always ask me the question, like, why do you not like peanut butter? And I think the answer is very simple. When I was three years old or four years old and mom was trying to get me to eat peanut butter, I said no. I don't want to eat peanut butter. And it wasn't anything against even the taste. I actually like peanuts. Like, if you give me peanuts, I'll eat peanuts. It's very strange. But I don't like peanut butter because when I was three or four, I said no to eating peanut butter. And over time, I kept saying no, mostly because I was stubborn. And I didn't like peanut butter and jelly sandwiches when there's a ham and cheese sandwich, which is clearly better. Um, yeah, right? It's clearly better. We can discuss the relative merits of these things later. But suffice it to say that the action of my will habituated my passions to the point now where I really don't like peanut butter. Someone on Thursday night very graciously brought me and one, another priest a, um, a box of fudge, and half of it was peanut butter fudge. And as soon as I opened it, there was this movement of my heart of disgust. Not for the giver of the gift, but for the gift. Yeah. Anyway, so this is, I use that kind of comical uh, uh, place to start because I think it's a good image of virtue. See, virtue is a habit. And how do we make a habit? Well, we choose a bunch of things. Or maybe we haven't chosen things, but things have happened and we've responded to them in a certain way. And so we respond in certain ways. I open the tub of fudge that has really good chocolate fudge on one side, but all I can think of is the disgusting peanut butter fudge, right? And habits that develop over time, they're exercised or they're, they're created through the action of our will. So the catechism defines virtue. Before we talk about prudence in particular, we're going to talk about virtue because if we don't understand what virtue is, prudence isn't going to make sense, right? It's a virtue and that's its genus. That's the type of thing that it is. So to know this, the, like what it is, you got to know the genus and then we'll figure out the specific difference, what makes it different from all the other virtues. So virtue is a habitual, I guess an, an habitual, and firm disposition to do the good. It allows a person not only to perform good acts, but to give the best of himself. The virtuous person tends towards the good with all his sensory and spiritual powers. He pursues the good and chooses it in concrete actions. That's the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I think I gave you that on the handout. But I think that that's a point worth remembering, right? That definition gives you a lot of things to unpack about what virtue is and what virtue is not. 
Virtue is not just um, white-knuckling something, as we're about to talk about, but it's actually something that changes our entire self. It makes us to be not only able to do things, but it actually makes us good. The mark of a good person is, in a sense, virtue. Dr. Ted Shree, um, Ted Shree uh, talks about virtue as skills for living well, which are directed towards happiness. They make us good. There's two types of actions that we do as human beings, right? We make things, like someone made this candle, and we do things. And the latter forms us. Sometimes when we're making something, we're also doing something, or, or all the time, actually. But when we're talking about growing in virtue, we're talking about primarily the first or the second type of action, right? The doing type of action, whose product is not some exterior thing to us, but actually something that's interior to us. A certain way of being in the world, if you will. It makes us to be able to be what a human being is fully supposed to be. But that begs a question. What is a human being supposed to be? What does it mean to live well? So th- we kind of already said that with Dr. Shree's um, definition of a virtue, skill for living well, which leads to happiness. The end of man is happiness. In our kind of um, cultural relativism of today, we struggle with this question, is there a purpose? Do we act with purpose? Is there one purpose of our life? And that's not a new question. Actually, um, Aristotle talks about it. Thomas Aquinas talks about it. And both of them say yes. And they say yes because man is, by his nature, rational. And so the actions that flow from human beings that are truly to be called human acts, they proceed from a choice. And every type of choice, anytime you choose something, you're by definition acting for an end. I choose to light the candle because that's what is necessary and proper for the celebration of Vespers. I chose to take time to prepare this talk because I knew you guys were coming. And I want to give glory to God. We act for an end. So every human act, every time you act, you act for an end. So what end should you act for? What And does everyone act for the same purpose all the time? Think about that question. Is the purpose of life the same for every human person? Thomas answers yes and no. As a good scholastic, he seldom, uh, what is it? Uh, Seldom seldom affirm or never deny and always distinguish. So he says yes in one way and no in another way. He says yes, that every man and woman 
acts for the end of happiness. Every action that you take is motivated by happiness. You're acting for happiness. Right? But he says no in this way. And this is where the rubber meets the road. We're not always sure exactly in what happiness consists. We can, and this is the power of free will, we can choose and we can disagree about what we think will actually bring us happiness. And what we choose to say is our happiness, it's not a a sterile question. It actually has consequences in you and I's life. That which a man rests in as his last end is master of his affections. Since he takes from that end the entire rule of his life. The entire reason is the word that Thomas actually uses in that quote. The entire purpose of his life. The, the purpose shapes all the rest of the decisions. So some argue, um, kind of in our postmodern society, that there's no one answer to what makes a person happy. But that argument is faulty. Right? It supposes that there's no... Uh, it's faulty on, because of this. It supposes that um, human nature doesn't exist. Right? A thing is something and it, it, it flourishes right, insofar as it fulfills its purpose. It's made for an end. Everything that you see, I mean, the, the pews that you're sitting on right now, they were made to sit on. And so when you sit on them, they fulfill their end. The candle was meant to be burned. It fulfills its end and it's a good candle if it burns well. We always have trouble with the candles here because of the, the drafts. That, anyway, so... Um, yeah, so there, what a thing is made for, right, is found by asking, like, you look at the nature of the thing. So we, ask, we have to ask what type of thing a human person is if we want to know in what happiness consists. So what's a human person for? What's the reason of a, the human person? Aristotle, he examines a lot of different things. Um, And he comes to the point where he says, um, so he he talks about like, does happiness consist in riches? Does it consist in pleasure? Does it consist in honor? Does it consist in having virtue itself? And he says none of those things actually uh, will bring happiness. And his final conclusion is that happiness is found in contemplation, which is a great answer for a pagan, right? Because it's very close to what we would say as Christians as well. And then Thomas picks this up. Tom, Saint Tom, when I say Thomas, he's my buddy, right? So I just first name, um, St. Thomas Aquinas. Um, he, he says, he kind of goes through the same list as Aristotle, wealth, honor, fame, power, goods of the body, pleasure, virtue itself, or, and then he adds one thing, any created good. Anything that we can see, anything that we experience. And he says, these are all found wanting 
Even though they're good, right? They're, they're, they are true goods. They're desirable. But they're found wanting. And he comes to the conclusion that that wanting actually points us to the fact that we're made ultimately for God. Happiness is being in communion with God. Our nature is that of the Imago Dei. We're made in the image and likeness of God, and we're redeemed to be the Imago Christi, the image of Christ. When we're baptized, made one with the body of Christ. So this is the fulfillment of our desires as human beings. If that's all true, then the goal of the virtuous life This is a quote from St. Gregory of Nyssa, is to become like God. That's the goal, right? To be able to commune with God. That's where true happiness consists. Christ came that you might have life, that I might have life, and life in abundance, brothers and sisters. Christ is the model of virtue, and he gives us grace to grow in virtue. See, the reality is we're born, um, Aristotle would call it, into an untutored state, right? We're we're born, um, it's kind of, I think it's G.K. Chesterton who said that it's the one empirically verifiable uh, fact of the Christian creed is original sin. You look around and you see this kind of, like, People acting unreasonably, people acting ridiculously, people acting... And, and then you look inside and you're like, man, I do that too. We know this. We're born into the untutored state and we must learn how to be virtuous. Concupiscence, the world, the evil one represent obstacles to the development of virtue. And Aristotle, he recognized this. He says this, anybody can become angry. Anyone can be angry, that's easy. But to be angry and with the right person, to the right degree, at the right time, and for the right purpose, and in the right way, by the way, that's not within everyone's power, and it's not easy. He uses that as kind of the metaphor for all the virtues, the growth in all of the virtues. The Catechism picks this up and it says, it's not easy for man wounded by sin to maintain moral balance. Christ's gift of salvation offers us the grace necessary to persevere in the pursuit of virtues. See, for non-Christian philosophers who were talking about virtue, how you were raised and how you were brought up made all the difference. Right? There, like, once you were vicious, if you were brought up in a, in a vicious way, there was no hope for you. And in a sense, um, all of them were just trying to fight this concupiscence that plagues human nature. There was no real hope for the vicious man, for Aristotle and Plato. Get a sense of this if you've ever read, or and I encourage you to, um, to read The Republic of Plato. He spends a lot of time talking about how the kids in the society ought to be raised precisely for this reason. Because if you miss that, it becomes 
almost impossible to get out of it. Brothers and sisters, the good news is that Christ came. And so for us, with his grace, we're capable of moving from a vicious state to a virtuous state. In fact, that's precisely what happened in our baptism. We were given every virtue that we need to inherit eternal life. But we also have to work. We also have to cooperate in this process of going from virtue, I'm, I'm sorry, from vice to virtue. Most of us would find ourselves, if you look at the little chart I gave you, would find ourselves somewhere in the middle, right? We'd find ourselves somewhere between being vicious and being truly virtuous. In some ways, we may be more continent than others. Um, I'm not going to take too much time to go through this, but this is kind of a spectrum. If you're trying to go from being vicious in some way to being virtuous, you kind of go through these stages. You come to know the good, right? The first thing, and this is, we'll get to this in prudence, the first thing is to come to know the good. And then you start to choose the good. Usually it becomes, it starts with, I choose the good less often than I choose the evil. And then I start to choose the good more often and more often, and I get habituated, I go to confession, I uh, ask for grace from God, and I continue to grow and grow and grow until, right, also, not only do I choose the good, but it's actually quickly chosen. It brings me joy. And I can choose it in any circumstance. Right? The passions for the virtuous person. This is what the catechism referenced at the very beginning. Right? A human being who's virtuous chooses the good with all of himself. Not just his intellect, not just his will, but his passions even tended towards that. That's where we're aiming. We don't stop at just white-knuckling. We're aiming for virtue. So brothers and sisters, now that we've kind of talked about how virtue looks in the general scheme of things, let's just kind of give a broad overview of the virtues in Christian life. We'll use the classical kind of demarcation that the catechism itself gives. We've got the cardinal virtues on the one hand and the theological virtues on the other. The cardinal virtues are perfections of human powers. Right? So they make uh, a human being to be a good human being insofar as human nature is. Let me, let me kind of, um, this will become a little bit clearer when you think about uh, the theological virtues. The cardinal virtues have been recognized from antiquity. Right? This, these four virtues of prudence, justice, courage, and temperance that we're going to be talking about, they've been recognized as fundamental to being a good human being 
since before the time of, of, uh, of, of Plato, before the time of Socrates. So Socrates is, is uh, talking about these things. So these are ideas that have been in our culture for a long time. Now, as the years have gone by, they've kind of changed meanings and different things like that. Um, but we're looking at them the way that the ancients looked at them, the way that Christianity has looked at them for its entire history. This is in contrast to the theological virtues, which are perfections of redeemed man. Are, they are a participation in the very life of God. They have, their, they have God as their immediate source, right? God gives the virtue, uh, and you could never earn it by yourself. He is their, the, the motive power, and he's their end. The source and the object of the theological virtues is God himself. So when you were baptized, you received faith, hope, and love because God gave them to you. Once again, you still have to cooperate with those things, but they're a free gift of God. You can merit an increase in charity by using the charity that you've given, you've been given, but you can never do it alone. And if you fall into mortal sin, a new act of God has to give you charity back. You can't earn it. The good news is, once again, God loves you. And he loves you even if you've fallen into sin. So he is always waiting to welcome you back. But what about the cardinal virtues? Let's return to them because that's what our main thing is going to be over these next four weeks. The cardinal virtues, as I said, are perfections of human beings according to human nature. Prudence, justice, courage, temperance. Now, for the Christian, though, and we'll try to make this distinction as we go through the different cardinal virtues, Pieper does in, in his book, they take on a new meaning. Okay. Virtue is always a mean between two vices. So you think about uh, the, vir the virtue of courage, for example. Let's say that one. Courage stands between, on the one hand, foolhardiness, right, which is uh, an excess of, of what would be kind of like courage, and cowardice, which is a defect of that. There's a perfection of the cardinal virtues which is according to human nature, right? For example, um, temperance. I eat enough to survive. I eat enough, uh, I eat in accord with kind of the, the, the day of the year. I eat what's nutritious. I don't eat peanut butter. Um, so, for, for us, though, as Christians, there's that type of temperance, but there's also a gift of the Spirit, not strictly speaking, but 
a, a gift given to us of infused temperance. Infused temperance changes the mean, right? If virtue is between a mean between two vices, it changes the mean a little bit. So, for example, temperance once again, um, fasting makes no sense on a human level. Makes absolutely no sense. Right? Maybe, maybe we could go uh, do the research. We got some med students here, so I'll, I'll defer to them about like if there's health benefits or something like that. But just on a, a, a normal, like just at first glance at least, it doesn't really make sense to fast, especially for a long period of time. Or it doesn't make sense to, on certain days, for example, Christmas and Easter, to feast, to eat more than we actually need to survive. It doesn't really make sense. But for a Christian, absolutely it makes sense. Fasting and feasting are reflections of the fact that temperance uh, for us as Christians means something different. It's in the service of charity. It gives it a new mean. And so um, we're going to talk about both acquired, which is the, the cardinal virtue according to human nature, and infused. But we shouldn't make too much of a... Um, distinction between the two of them. We shouldn't just make like a hard and fast, like black and white between the two of them. God is giving us these things and we are able to use them. Okay. So, two main takeaways from that first part of that. Virtue is built by repeated actions and it makes us good. It orders us to happiness. And that change begins in the mind, which commands the will to choose what is actually good, even when the passions are unreasonably opposed. If you want to go from vice to virtue, it's going to hurt because you have to choose against what feels good. You have to choose against that thing. Ignatius calls that adjure contra, right? to act against. Now, the end is not that, though. You actually come to train your passions. It's like learning how to shoot a basketball. The first time you shoot a basketball, or right, like it's hard. You have to like, figure out how to put your hand and the other hand, and well, why do I have this hand here if I'm not supposed to push it? You know, it all those kind of things. And then over time, you get that you're in a game or something like that, someone passes you the ball and you can just do it. You don't have to think about it. That's where we're aiming for. To get there, we start with the intellect. Why? Because the intellect is the highest power of man. We begin with prudence. Prudence is the perfection of the intellectual power of man. It's the charioteer of the virtues. It orders and directs all of the other virtues. It kind of gives the shape, so to speak, of the game of human life, if you want to use a sports analogy. Prudence is knowing what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. It's knowing the end for which you act and how to get to that end. If... Um, Sometimes when we use the word prudence in our kind of mind right now, uh, or at least in our cultural ethos right now, we think of cautiousness and reserve. 
Now, those are actually part of prudence. To have caution is actually a part of prudence, but it's not the fullness of prudence. In fact, there's a balancing uh, part of prudence, which is, uh, Thomas calls it solitaria, which I don't know how to translate, shrewdness or nimbleness. Like, yeah, I just see what I'm supposed to do and I just do it, right? I, I just know what I'm supposed to do and I don't have to, to think about it too much. So prudence is right reason in action. It's not, uh, it's not just caution. It's not um, acting overly quickly. It's practical reason about the means to achieve happiness, the means to achieve flourishing. And all virtue is necessarily then prudent. It has a certain priority in the virtues because it directs the highest part of us, that which makes us to be what we are, namely reason. And therefore, all the parts of us are guided by it. Thomas Aquinas has a wonderful line about the good of man. He says, the good of man, inasmuch as he is man, is this, that reason be perfected in the knowledge of truth, and that the inferior appetites be ruled according to reason's rule. For man is man, precisely because he is rational. You look around in the world, what distinguishes us from animals? Well, we are animals in a sense, but we're rational. We can think, we can plan, we can choose. We're not just acting by instinct. So if that's the case, for a human being on a human level, prudence is right reason about how to be a good human being in concrete situations. On a redeemed human level, right, so acquired virtue, infused virtue, it is right reason concerning how to grow in holiness. It takes charity as its guiding principle. Pieper calls prudence the cause of other virtues being virtues because it gives them their form. He talks about it in the sense of a prototype or a measure of all human virtue. So it's helpful to use this example of art. Art always exists in the mind of the artist before it's on the canvas, before the sculpture comes to be, before David was carved. It's Michelangelo, right? Or is it Da Vinci who carved it? I can't remember. Uh, Michelangelo, uh, or David, I can't remember, or Leonardo da Vinci, I can't remember, whoever it was, uh, carved, or like had it in the mind. It existed in his mind before it existed in reality. The correspondence of the work to the prototype in the mind is what makes it good. We might, by extension, just for our um, kind of contemplation, meditation, um, consider that what makes us good is our correspondence with the prototype in God's mind. And God doesn't make mistakes. Anyway, that's an aside. Human cognition, then, right, the, the power that is perfected by prudence, 
is true by its correspondence by, with the standard of objective reality. The work of art is true and real by its correspondence with the pattern of, its, of the prototype in the mind of the artist. In a similar fashion, says Pieper, the free activity of man is good by its correspondence with the, the pattern of prudence. The pattern of prudence. We can say then that prudence directs us to true humanness. And therefore, it's preeminent. It's interesting, Pieper says this about prudence. The preeminence of prudence signifies, first of all, the direction of the volition, of volition and action toward truth. Right? So we start with truth as human beings. You act according to what you know. That's what that means. You say, I know this, and I know that this is good for me, or at least I believe that it is good for me, and therefore I choose this. Right? The, the syllogism is like this. Let me do that syllogism again. I should do what's good. Not eating peanut butter is good for me. I should not eat peanut butter. Right? And I don't. Right? The, the end of the syllogism is which is just a logical progression, right, is an action or a non-action. And this means that prudence starts in the mind, but it ends in objective reality, the directing of our willing and action towards objective reality. The work of prudence then makes us to act in accord with our true nature, with the law of our nature, with what we are. And this means that prudence is not simply about meaning well. It's not just about the intention. It's actually about habitually choosing the best means to achieve a proper end. Prudence is not concerned with directly the ultimate, whether natural or supernatural, ends of human life, but with the means to these ends. The special nature of prudence is it's concerned with the realm of ways and means and down-to-earth realities. It's in the nitty-gritty that you actually use prudence. It applies the general principles of reason to this situation and to this circumstance. Should I cook? Um, so if I, if for example, um, if it's my mom, if I know it's my mom's birthday on June 1st, it's my mom's birthday, um, how should I, what's the thing that I want to do? Well, I want to honor my mom. How am I going to do that? Well, I think about all the things that I could possibly do to honor my mom, I could send her a card, I could go visit her, I could um, do all these things, and I kind of list them out and think about them, and then I choose. And a prudent person, right, chooses the best means on a regular basis, habitually. This means something interesting also. No one can make that decision for you. Sometimes 
um, sometimes people uh, try to punt decisions, right? They're like, what should I do here? And it's not wrong to ask for counsel. In fact, counsel is part of prudence at seeking counsel. But you can't deputize someone to make the decision for you. You can choose to follow their advice or not. But ultimately, you have to choose. Anyone who's an adult is responsible. Well, actually, any human being, not even someone who's an adult, is responsible for their actions insofar as they possess reason. Right? There's... That shouldn't scare us, though, right? There's a certain, like, this is the create, like, the, the desire of God for us. Like, he invites us into his own ability to choose. What a great gift. I mean, it, it, sometimes it's, it feels very difficult, but if we actually trust that God is a loving God and that his grace is with us and that he's all-powerful and able to act in all ways... We have nothing to fear. We look and we choose. So how do we cooperate with this virtue? And what are its kind of aspects and um, how can we describe it a little bit more fully here? There's three parts or aspects of prudence that I want to touch on. Um, And they're there in that little table for you. First, perceiving what are the possible means. Second, judging what are the best means in this situation. And then third, commanding the will to choose the means that are perceived to be best. So, often this is um, divided into two parts, right? The perceptive part, the counsel slash knowing part. And then the choosing part, or the commanding part. Judgment kind of stands, I, I know I have it in like the second box, but it's more kind of like in the middle. It stands at the, the kind of the liminal state between perceiving and commanding the, in the middle part. But it's probably more on the side of um, the will. So I, I chose that. So the perceptive part is turned towards reality, towards what is. Prior, it's prior to and it sets a standard. So um, Thomas talks about the different parts of prudence. Um, and these, these are all listed there for you. Memory, so past knowledge, understanding, knowledge in the present of the principles and particulars of a situation. So that would be like, I ought to do good. Um, uh, another principle would be like, I shouldn't lie. Uh, another principle would be um, like the Ten Commandments, kind of that kind of stuff would fall into those principles. Or uh, the greatest commandment probably is one of the best there. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, Soletia. So that's shrewdness, nimbleness of considering the future. So that's like the person who's got the intuition. It's someone who can look at a situation and intuits. Um, what they should do. Reasoning, which compares and logically draws conclusions. So reasoning kind of orders all of these things together. Memory, understanding, 
that nimbleness and docility. Probably want to emphasize docility there as part of prudence. You'll notice in the questions that I gave you that I quoted Aristotle that if you want to know what prudence is, you have to look at people who are prudent. So if you want to know, uh, if you want to know how to live a good life, look at people that you admire. Look at people that are truly living that good life. Just like if you want to be a doctor, if you want to be a good doctor, you go look at good doctors and you imitate what they're doing. Or if you want to be a good chef, you imitate what a good chef does. So also in prudence, which orders the entirety of human life, not just it's not limited to one particular area, you have to look and ask for counsel from people who are wiser than you. Okay, so if we have all of those things, like the memory, the understanding, all of that kind of stuff, we still don't have prudence completely. Because prudence chooses. It's not just in the mind. It's not just knowing. It's actually acting. So you have to make a judgment, and then you have to command yourself to act and actually act. So it's turned towards the future, what ought to be, and it's secondary and subordinate to that knowing. Thomas talks about uh, the virtue, the, the part of prudence that he calls foresight. Foresight is actually what he says is um, where prudence gets its name because in Latin, foresight is providentia, like to see forward. And then he says that that got alluded. I don't know if his etymology is perfect, but it actually kind of makes sense. So foresight is being able to see what means will bring about a certain end. Circumspection, which is looking at all of the different uh, aspects of a certain uh, set of circumstances. And caution. Caution is looking at the effects of uh, the negative effects which could come about uh, from a decision that are not intended. Negative effects. So that's kind of the wheat and the tares um, parable, if you remember that. So Christ tells them to allow the wheat and the weeds to grow together for fear that if you pull out the weeds, you'll destroy the wheat as well. So there's some defects there that we could talk about, but we're uh, kind of coming up on time here, so I'm going to skip those, but um, except for the last one, worrying. I think that this is something that uh, a lot of us struggle with. Prudence doesn't mean that you never make a decision because you're always trying to figure out pros and cons and benefits and risks and all that stuff. At some point, you just have to make a decision. And that leads me to ways to grow in prudence. Um, First, informing our intellect. Reading and learning God's law and what is good, what the law, which is what the law is for. The law in scripture, God gives the law not as a tyrant, but as a teacher. So things like memorizing scripture, praying, that's why we started with prayer, studying the teaching of the church, all of those things help us to have the principles in mind so that we can apply them in action. 
It also helps to read just good books, okay, whether they're spiritual or not. If you're, uh, you know, if you're a business person, you better be reading books about your craft. If you're a doctor, you better be staying up uh, to date with the most uh, recent knowledge that you need to know. But not only kind of the nonfiction stuff, reading good fiction actually can help us to develop prudence as well. Stories have a way of um, sticking with us that sometimes nonfiction doesn't. Think of all the things that you learned from fairy tales growing up and the Book of Virtues, if you ever read that. Right? All of us know the, uh, the tortoise and the hare. <laughs> we all know, like I can just say that statement and 95% of people that I encounter will know that. Also, the lives of saints, biographies, all of those kind of things, taking that information in and looking how people uh, were acted prudently or imprudently will help you to grow in prudence. I'm reading a biography right now. It's not really a biography. It's about um, Pope Pius XII, but it's about his um, life during the Second World War and how, from the outside looking in, it looked like he wasn't doing much to help um, the Jews, right, to help save the Jews. But that after many years, you look back and you look at all of the things that he actually did. And it's an astounding story. And um, this is a man who is clearly prudent, and he's able to, to take all of those parts, taking his past knowledge, seeking counsel from other people, and put them together and ask the Lord for guidance, and then make a decision that could be wrong. <laughs> Some of the things that he did, it's just like, man, that's amazing. So, um, yeah, I just encourage you to read those kind of things. Second, and this should be obvious by now, is your friends. The people you surround yourself with, the people you trust to speak into your life, whether those are older people, or whether those are people your same age. In fact, Peeper goes so far to say that a friend, only through the love of friendship, is it possible for another person to help shape someone's decision in a, in a good way. A friend, and a prudent friend at that, can help shape a friend's decision. He does so by virtue of that love, which makes the friend's problem his own the friend's ego, his own, so that, after all, it is not entirely from outside that he looks. See, when we have a good friend, it's like having another self. Um, when we've shared life with someone, they can start to look from our perspective and we can start to look from their perspective. And therefore, if they're prudent, we can rely on them in situations to help us make decisions in concrete situations. So seeking counsel from friends, seeking counsel from uh, people you trust, seeking counsel uh, is, and being docile to that counsel is really important. In a particular way, being docile to the like things that you're called to be obedient to. Um, laws and um, that we're all called to be obedient to. Laws, and I mean, for me, it's really clear, right? When the bishop speaks, 
I go, right? Like, and it's not always easy, but that's, that is, I'm, I'm called to be obedient. But you too, brothers and sisters, there's a certain obedience in your workplace, in your um, friendships, in your relationships, in all of those things that you have to respect. And that helps you to uh, continue to grow in prudence. I just want to touch on one specific area there. Um, seeking counsel for specific questions is very wise. So uh, spiritual direction is is actually a prudential kind of activity. Um, and if there's specific things or specific things you're trying to overcome or specific choices that you're trying to make, that can be helpful. Um, even if it's just one conversation, um, we trust that the Lord actually does work through those kind of things. The third thing you can do to... Um, Work on prudence, and I can't emphasize this enough, is to eliminate things that are objectively sinful from your life. You won't grow in prudence, um, or you won't grow as fast in prudence um, without eliminating those things. Thomas says that both forms, are that, sorry, Thomas says that prudence is the opposing vice is covetousness, right? In both forms. So you think of the ninth and the tenth commandment. It's desiring after goods that are not our own. And so he connects imprudence to lust often. Um, and so if you're always seeking, the, the reason he connects, he makes this connection is because if you're always seeking the good of pleasure or the good of uh, <clears throat> money or the good of fame or the goods that are uh, proper to the body, um, none of those things are wrong in a non-disordered way, right? Um, you'll start to lose sight of the highest things. You'll start to look at the lowest things, not in light of the highest things, but the higher things in light of the lower things. So this is, a, this is a challenge. Sometimes vices have developed in our life that keep us from acting reasonably. And to overcome that kind of vice, for example, uh, vice of using pornography or of gossip or of uh, detraction or of lying, those kind of things, to overcome that kind of vice requires trust to start with. First of all, trust in God. And second of all, trust in the church and in your friends. Trust enough to seek out those who you see are living virtuously and ask them for help. doesn't mean they have to be living perfectly. But to seek help. Because when we're in vice, often we won't see why uh, something is prudent or imprudent. We need someone else to speak into our life, primarily God, but he often acts through other people. Finally, prayer. Prayer will help you grow in prudence. You have to be still. 
to grow in prudence. You have to be still enough to actually have a moment to think about what you've done in the past and what you want to do in the future. If we're always just running around, then we'll never actually grow in prudence because we'll just make the same mistakes over and over and over again. Experience is necessary in growth and prudence. You have to have experience to have acquired prudence. Now, age isn't an invariable sign of prudence or wisdom, but it is often a precondition. There's some things we just sometimes have to experience before we can say, ah, this is the way. The way we grow from that is, uh, or one way you can grow from that, is by um, taking up a practice called the particular examine. The particular examine, um, if you've heard of it, an examination of conscience, right? Like before you go to confession, you do an examination of conscience. The particular examine is kind of an extension of that, but what it is is you pick one thing. You could do it every day. Um, I would encourage you to do it every day to pick one thing that you're going to work on that day to grow in. And then in the morning, you set your mind to that. And at lunchtime, you ask yourself, how did I do this morning? You take five minutes to ask yourself that question. And then in the evening, the same question. And it seems stupidly simple, but it works. (laughs) And that's a way to grow in prudence. Um, Finally, just... One last point. Those last two things, right? The, the fact that you need to be able to sit still and contemplate what's happened and uh, do that in prayer. And you need the patient effort of experience to continue to grow in prudence. Those last two things taken together mean that you have to try things and then evaluate them repeatedly. A reminder to all of us here, I think, is in order. When speaking of human prudence, you could have charity. You could have the life of God in you and act imprudently. That's called a mistake. And accepting correction in that matter is important. And if we recognize that we're going to probably make mistakes when it comes to living well, then we can recognize also that God is uh, going to help us in our failures. Accepting that kind of correction takes humility. It's the way to prudence. It's the way to live well. And it's a solution to much of the anxiety that we often feel when we're faced with a decision. See, infused prudence... Remember, we had the distinction between infused and acquired prudence. Infused prudence, which comes from God, helps you choose the means to eternal life. You will not lose grace without a definite choice on your part. Right? That should give you freedom. You have to choose. Now, you can choose that. It's not hard to choose that. But no one can choose it for you. No one can force you to do that. So in the life of growing in acquired prudence, we make mistakes. You made mistakes when you were learning 
how to reason in math class. And you'll make mistakes in practical reasoning. But you can grow. I can grow. A big aid to that growth is getting used to feeling slightly unsure. At least at first. Decisions of prudence don't have the same certainty as 2 plus 2 equals 4. And they never will. In decisions of prudence, by, which by the very nature of prudence are concerned with things concrete, remember it's here, this place, right now, contingent and future, there can't be certainty, which is the same certainty which is possible in a theoretical conclusion. Brothers and sisters, I know we want, uh, at least I do, I often want black and white in my decisions. But that's just not the way that it works. Thomas Aquinas himself says, the certitude of prudence cannot be so great as completely to remove all anxiety. So, with that in mind, don't expect certainty in every decision. Give to every decision a proper amount of time, of circumspection, consider the opinions of other people, then make a decision. And trust that even if, objectively speaking, it was wrong, God's grace will lead you to the path of everlasting life. And that's what really matters in the end. God loves you. So go make decisions. Go look for and understand the principles and apply them in whatever you're doing. If you're a lawyer, be a good lawyer. If you're a doctor, be a good doctor. If you're a business person, if you're working at the 7-Eleven, be a good 7-Eleven clerk. Right? Prudence will help you to do all of those things. And God's grace will be with you in all of them. Okay, so uh, we got about, well, it's 8.19. So uh, how much, what, what time did we say we were going to end? I don't remember. Anyone know? Okay, great. So let's take uh, <laughs> 10 minutes for small group time. Um, maybe, maybe if people want to stay longer, that's fine. If people need to leave. Uh, the Bishop's Hall should be open. Uh, if people want to kind of get into groups. I don't know, Grant, did we make any groups there? Okay, yeah, so if people want to, uh, to jump into groups, uh, the Bishop's Hall is open. Um, it's not too cold outside yet uh, as well, so feel free. We won't have a, uh, a formal time to get back together uh, at the end, um, so we'll say a little prayer right now and uh, then have some time together and um, we'll talk about these things. If you have questions, comments, or concerns, uh, let me know, and I'm happy to, uh, to dive more deeply into these things. So. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Almighty and merciful God, graciously keep from us all adversity, so that unhindered in mind and body alike we may pursue in freedom of heart the things that are yours through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever, amen. All right, see you all later.